To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There was a man who had two sons. So begins one of the most famous stories in all of the gospel. What we probably know is the parable of the prodigal son. Now we've heard this story enough times that we can probably recite it from memory, which is why I'm going to inflict it on you again this morning. (laughs) The stories from scripture that we think we know best are often the ones that we need to hear again as if for the first time. Now, this happens in our lives quite often. If you hear something often enough from the same source, eventually you start to tune it out. How many of us have this experience in our personal lives, in relationships? You need not share examples. Uh, But for example, when you board a ferry and you hear that vaguely pleasant voice in the background welcoming you aboard the Washington State Ferry System, probably saying something important that you're going to want to know in the event of an emergency, but I just hear a buzz. That voice could say, Michael Boone, report to the galley. You've won a million dollars, and I would never hear a word of it. It's just background noise. So we've heard so many parables from Jesus in so many different settings that they might become easy for us to not hear very well. We might be a little bit numb to their impact, but we have to enter again into these stories on their own terms each and every time we hear one and accept or reject the invitation that they offer to look at things from a slightly different angle. In Jesus' ministry, parables are a prophetic tool that he is using to invite the listener to explore further. So if we think we know exactly how a certain question can be resolved, Jesus asks us to reconsider, to come a little deeper down the rabbit hole with him. Parables are not fortune cookies. They're multi-layered. They're told so that we will press and dig deeper to find the truth that they're trying to convey. They want us to ask better questions, all of which can be a little frustrating. Why will Jesus not just come out and say something plainly if he thinks it's so important? And that's because we listen to stories differently than we listen to lectures. They activate different parts of our brains and our imaginations. And Jesus wants these stories to stick with us. In the gospel, the crowds that gather usually get the parables from Jesus without any explanation or interpretation. So that whatever response they make to him doesn't come from his convincing of their intellect, but from their hearts being poked and prodded to seek out the truth that will lead them into eternal life. There was a man who had two sons could be the start of any number of stories in Scripture. In what we call the Old Testament alone, there are plenty of characters who fit this description. Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac had Esau and Jacob, just to pick out a prominent few. And as it happens, in these stories, it is the younger son, the second one, who is regarded with the most favor. In addition to all those others, King David was a youngest son. So by the time Jesus tells this parable for the first time, in response to the grumbling of some in the crowd that was following him about his friends, it would have been understood that the younger son in the story is the one that we are meant to identify with. 
So the first surprise in this parable is that the younger son is not a righteous Abel or faithful Isaac or clever Jacob. He's not one of Israel's heroes. He is an irresponsible, self-indulgent, and probably indulged brat. So the younger son comes to his father with his hand out. Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Parenthetically, when you die. Those of you with children may be familiar with this line of approach. It is direct and to the point. You've perhaps heard it said that in this moment, the younger son says to his father, I wish that you were already dead and that I had all the property and the cash that was coming to me when that day comes, but I want it now. And that is not entirely wrong. But the division of the property between heirs prior to the death of the father was not unheard of. It could be done, even if it was, of course, a little bit awkward. It's hard to unring that particular bell in a relationship. But because younger sons had less responsibility, they would usually only get about a third of the assets. And two-thirds would go to the older son, because the older son has to provide for his parents into their old age. So this father is generous. He does not lose his temper as some of us might with our children. He divides the property between his children equally. In the Greek, it says he divided his life, his assets, his cash, his property, all he has, he splits between the two sons. And then shortly after that, the younger son hits the road, headed to a far country. He has what he wanted and he is out the door. I really love to travel, and so when I was younger, I would often take road trips because I had no money. And it was the easiest way to get from point A to point B without much cash or much of a plan. So once, a man in Florida had three sons, and his oldest son and his middle son planned a trip to the far-off mythical city of Tampa <laughs> to watch their high school win a state cross-country championship. And they managed to borrow a car because neither of them had one suitable for such a long and arduous journey. And they made their plans for this quick, quick weekend getaway without perhaps keeping their own father in the loop uh, as much as he might have preferred. Which is to say, we didn't tell him exactly what we were doing and where we were going at all times and all places. And so these two sons made an unfortunate misstep. They were discussing their plans around the dinner table the night they were before they were going to leave when suddenly it became clear that their father had no idea that they had been making this plan up to that point. I present to you a faithful reinterpretation of that conversation. <clears throat> Tampa? Who's going to Tampa? You're not going to Tampa. And suddenly our heroes had to do some quick explaining but they indeed did make their getaway. So the far country that this younger son journeyed to must have been a kind of Tampa. There are all kinds of exotic entertainments to spend money on. There are new friends to come along and help him lighten his pockets. And quickly the younger son comes to the end of his recently acquired resources. Now we know this must have been in Gentile territory because when he spent all of his money, and a famine struck, and he's starting to starve, the younger son goes out and hires himself out to a, to a farmer to feed his pigs. 
And the younger son is so hungry that he longs to eat the food that he's throwing to the swine. Pigs are, of course, famously not kosher, unclean for Jewish people, so he must have been very desperate. These are dark times. But then this selfish young man comes to his senses. He remembers what it was like to live in his father's house, where there was more bread than anyone needed, even if he has to go and beg his father for a job, at least then he will not die of hunger. He does not wallow in his foolishness at the big mess that he has made of things. As soon as he realizes what an idiot he has been, he got up, he got out of there, and he went home where he belonged. So the question is, does the younger son come to his senses because he is repentant or because he is starving? And does it matter? His motivations are murky at best, as ours often are. From the text, it's clear that the younger son wants to have a line ready to deliver when he gets home. He's rehearsing it all the way down the road, a line that will get him what he wants from his father. So here's what he plans to say. Father, this part is important. It's not the language of groveling. It's the language of relationship. And that means it's a little manipulative. Parents, if your children come to you with to their eyes wide and doughy, and they say, Father, you know the trouble is just around the carrot, right? <laughs> Father, around whom the planets are ordered. Uh, no. Uh, this, is, this is a manipulative setup. I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, this should sound familiar because it's what Pharaoh says to Moses in the, in, right before the plagues when Moses is ready to leave. And Pharaoh is ready to be done. I have sinned against heaven and before you. It's a little bit better because it does seem to admit a little bit of responsibility, right? But this is a non-apology kind of apology. This is the apology of a press conference where you've been caught doing something bad, but pending legal charges are still coming, and you can't really tell anybody what it is you might have done. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, this feels a little overdramatic. It's accurate, but it is a little overwrought. Treat me as one of your hired servants is actually a job request. But it also leaves plenty of room for the father to be generous if he's in the mood. Frankly, this is very well-constructed, clever phrasing all the way around. So the wayward son is coming home reciting his little mantra to himself, ready to give his speech, hopeful that he is going to get not just what he needs, but what he wants. And his father sees him on the road from a long way off, and he runs out to greet his son. His joy is undignified and unrestrained. You can imagine this is the time before shorts were popular. Uh, this is really the time before trousers. Uh, so picture, if you will, uh, an older man in a robe running out to greet his son down a dusty road. There's nothing about this that is proper and dignified. The father's joy is so great that he embraces his son, and the son gives his little speech that he has worked on the whole way home, but it proves to be unnecessary because his father is ready and waiting for this moment. He's already telling the servants, bring the best robe, bring shoes, bring a ring for his hand, slaughter the fattened calf, fire up the grill, because the lost son, who was as good as dead, is back. 
So there's no time for an accounting of where all the money went to, which is actually in the younger son's favor. There's no time for a litmus test of repentance. So whether his repentance is genuine or just convenient actually doesn't matter because the joy of the father is overwhelming and now it's party time. Unfortunately, for the tidy interpretation of this story, this parable remembered as the parable of the prodigal son. In truth, there are two sons in this household and both of them have been lost and need to be found. The older son has been out working in the fields. If this is a wealthy family, they're not so well off that he can afford just to kick back and lounge, particularly now that his younger brother has left the scene. And as he gets closer to the house, he hears music and dancing and is confused. He asks one of the servants what's going on, and the response must not have been pleasant for him at all. Your brother is back. And your father has killed the fattened calf. Now, this is a factual answer, but the servant may as well have said, it's a great big party for your ungrateful little brother that your father and all the rest of us like better than you. (laughs) Because he is so much more fun. You should come in and see just how much fun we're having. Now, the older brother has been working. He's been sweating. He's keeping his head down, doing all the right things, saying all the right things. He is duty defined in a person, and he is angry. When is his party? Who celebrates those who stay and do all the right things all the time while everybody else goes away and fritters dad's cash? His refusal to come inside is obviously socially embarrassing for the family, But this father is past the point of worrying about these kind of things. He just wants his sons to be in with him where they belong. And this is the point where we have to note that the father in this parable is not perfect. These boys have some issues. And their family communication style really needs some work. Their patterns of dealing with conflict are fraught with mistakes. And the older son does have a case, right? His younger brother has squandered his inheritance and abandoned the family. There has to be some kind of justice. Standards have to be maintained, don't they? He's never even asked for a goat to roast with his friends. And if in his anger the older son exaggerates what the younger brother might have done with dad's money in that far off country, he does get the spirit of things right. He is resentful of the graciousness of his father. And he tries to step back a little bit from the relationship that they share as a family. His recovered brother is this son of yours. That often happens in my family when something goes wrong. Children are traded back and forth. Your son did this. Your brother did this. And he pointedly does not refer to his father with any warmth at all. He sees himself as one of the hired servants. And the issue that he has with his father's excessive and reckless generosity is valid because the father is willing to welcome the younger son home even when he has squandered his inheritance and not really done that much repenting. The father is stunned and probably, as any of us would be, a little sad. All that is mine is yours, he says. Roast all the goats you want. But your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
This is the thing that matters the most. And that's where the parable leaves us. The interpretation is left open. And the story sticks with humanity across the generations. Now these two lost sons and their loving, perhaps foolish father put us in a difficult place. Because the parables are not always as straightforward as we might hope. They are not tidy. The father is compassionate and unquestioning, but also maybe a little bit overly generous. He loves his sons. And while he is not perfect, his love for them does mirror the love that God the Father has for all people, even sinners. And this is what we cannot afford to let fade into background noise. The younger son is privileged and wasteful. The older son is resentful and bitter. The father may be too gracious and too forgiving of his favorite boy, but they are together. They are a family, and there is so much to celebrate. The right interpretation of this parable hangs less on being able to identify each and every one of the characters and who they might be standing in for, and more on recognizing the attitude that our God takes towards sinful people, whether they are foolish or stubborn, older or younger, first-timers or long-timers. When we come to our senses... And when we decide to come home, God welcomes us with open arms. He calls us sons and daughters. He clothes us in a righteousness that we have not earned and throws a feast in our honor. He does this for everyone who comes to their senses and decides to seek forgiveness and call on God's grace. He does that for each and every one of us each and every Sunday here at this table where we eat and drink together as reconciled and forgiven members of the family, the household of God. Those who have been reunited with our true identity and invited to partake in a heavenly banquet. The table, therefore, is set for all wasteful prodigals and proud older children and indulgent parents, and for all others who are ready and willing to come and receive from God more grace than we could ever deserve. Amen. Amen.